Good evening, everybody. Um, <clears throat> it's a joy to be with you this evening. Um, in case you're not aware, Pastor Ray is preaching in both the English, both English services and the Cantonese service this coming Sunday. And so he is working really, really hard uh, for this church. Um, he was originally going to try to preach tonight as well. And so, um, yeah, that, that would have just been a little too crazy. And so, so tonight I have the, the, the privilege to, uh, to join in um, this week and, uh, and jump in for this section. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, we are continuing in Mark chapter 10. We're continuing off of uh, Pastor Henry, uh, his uh, latest or, or his, the previous passage he, he preached, which was on letting the little children come. But tonight, uh, we're going to be in the next section, and that's Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. So if you do have your Bibles, please, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> All right, so we're going to be reading from 17 to verse 31. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at Jesus, uh, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Verse 23. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to him, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And pray with me. God, we thank you for the power of your word to transform lives. This gift of your spirit to guide us through this text. So I pray, Lord, that indeed your word would have its full effect in the hearts of your people. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So several years ago, a woman died in a single house fire in Costa Mesa. The fire was reported at 6.30 a.m. in the morning, and firefighters immediately found heavy smoke coming from the front of her house. So they ran into the one-story house, and after being told that someone was inside, um, or, yeah, they ran into the one-story house after being told someone was inside, but they found it difficult to move around because multiple objects blocked their way. 
The deputy fire chief said that they were on their knees and bellies for most of the time because of the intense heat and smoke. We went through the front door but encountered pack rat conditions immediately, he said. Objects in the house slowed the search, but firefighters eventually made their way through, and the woman was found on the floor and pronounced dead at the scene, presumably from smoke inhalation. She could not escape, but was trapped in the fire by all her possessions. Emergency responders in hurricane territory also speak of people who sometimes refuse to evacuate their homes during mandatory evacuations. For some of these people, it's because they can't afford to evacuate. For others, it's because they can't bear the thought of leaving their homes and all their possessions behind. And they want to keep their possessions from looters. And the frustration that emergency responders experience is easily understood, as one FEMA administrator said in an interview, in an interview after a recent hurricane. Unfortunately, in this country, we seem to not learn the lesson. When we ask people at the local and state level to heed the warnings and evacuate, dang it, do it, get out. And in some cases, emergency responders have resorted to writing the social security numbers of individuals using permanent marker on the arms of people refusing to evacuate so that search and rescue can identify their bodies after the storm has passed. Now, this all sounds pretty outrageous, but I would insist that there are some things here that are characteristic of every human heart. And so this evening, we will look at Jesus' exchange with the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10, which ought to cause us to reexamine what we're still holding on to in light of the cost of following Jesus Christ. We're going to look at Jesus' exchange with the rich young ruler, which ought to cause us to re-examine what we're still holding on to in light of the cost of following Jesus Christ. So we're going to see three, three things. And first, we're going to look at the urgent question. Secondly, the revelatory response. And finally, the cost of discipleship. So the urgent question and the revelatory response and lastly, the cost of discipleship. So first, the urgent question. This is verse 17. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So here we see that Jesus was setting out on a journey. Jesus and his disciples were actually heading to Jerusalem for the last time. Okay, we find this in uh, 1032, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And then the next chapter, we have the triumphal entry. And then a few chapters later, we arrive upon the crucifixion. So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem intent on one person, on one purpose, and that is to die for the sins of the people he has come to save. And next we see a man ran up to him and knelt before him. Now, Matthew informs us from the parallel passage in Matthew 19 that this man was a young man. And Luke reveals that he was a ruler from Luke 18, 18. It's most likely that this is a ruler of a synagogue. And all three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all indicate that this man was very, very wealthy. And all of these details combined make what this man does very startling, very unexpected, and almost scandalous, okay? Because in the ancient Near East, dignified men of class, men of stature, did not run. You wouldn't run because you'd have to kind of grab up your garments and you'd expose your legs and that would be shameful, you think of the parable of the prodigal son, and what did the father do? He ran to meet his son as he saw his son returning home. And that was a parable, okay? And even so, that parable was received with disdain by its hearers. The people would have wondered, how can this respectable father humiliate himself in that way? 
for this son who just threw dirt in his face and just rejected him. But unlike the situation in the parable, this rich young ruler here was real life. And he did not hesitate. The urgency of the question that weighed upon his heart prompted him to act. And forfeiting the etiquette of his social standing, this man kicks up a commotion, running up to Jesus as if a child, and he proceeds further to kneel before him in a posture of humility and reverence. And he greets him with honor. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? The timeless question that has weighed upon the collective heart of mankind. Through the ages, man has witnessed God's eternal power and his invisible attributes still clearly seen, revealed all around him in the world that he has made. Revealed all around man in the world that God has made. And in this mortal life, man has a sense that he was made for something greater. For God has set eternity in man's heart. Ecclesiastes 3.11. It is evident even in the cold, grim reality of death, which man observes through the years, as he buries his loved ones over the course of his life. And even as the sand in his own hourglass dwindles, death follows him like a shadow throughout his stay on earth. In the face of all of this, every impulse inside him testifies, there must be more. Morality, good and evil, the finite before the infinite. It is all meaningless and absurd, if not for something more beyond this life. Therefore, his soul insists we have been made for more, made for a life beyond this life. A truth which all of the religions of the world seek to find and by their searching testify. But in light of all of this, man also inherently knows that of himself, he is inadequate for attaining eternal life. Deep within the seat of his soul, he knows that he has found wanting on the scales before his creator. And his conscience bears witness to the reality that the work of God's law is written in his heart. And he knows that something is lacking. Something is missing. And that he does not measure up. And so for millennia, man has moved to seek out whatever means to close that gap. By his own strength and determination, by his own will and exertion, what must I do to gain eternal life? Tell me, what must I do and I will accomplish it? Tell me which mountain to climb and I will ascend its peak. Give me that destination and if it requires everything out of me, I will get there. Show me the path of pilgrimage that leads to salvation. And I will arrive in Mecca, even if I must do so on my hands and knees. And so this rich young ruler comes with this weighty question burning in his soul. Good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. But let's consider this guy for just a moment. Who is he? Because this guy had it all. He has wealth, success, status, class, rank in society. In the eyes of the Jews, 
This man must be righteous because God only rewards the righteous with blessings. He only rewards the righteous with the riches that this man has. But even with all of these achievements and all of these merits, all of these successes in his heart of hearts, this young man knew that he did not possess eternal life. He was very well aware of his need. And out of that desperation, he comes to Jesus seeking that which he has not been able to obtain. Unlike Nicodemus, another ruler of the Jews, who feared his fellow Pharisees and went to Jesus under the cover of night, this rich young ruler did not waver in the shadows. He didn't care about public humiliation. He paid no heed to the scrutiny and indignation of his peers who hated and scorned this Sabbath-breaking friend of tax collectors and sinners. Instead, this young man runs up to Jesus in broad daylight, and he falls at his feet. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? Let's look at the revelatory response, verses 18 to 22. We've seen the urgent question. Now we're looking at the revelatory response, verse 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So in reply to this man's question, what does Jesus do? Jesus challenges him with another question, a question of his own. And he's not humbly just waving away a compliment, right? Saying, why do you call me good? You know, oh, stop. You don't need to, you know, stop it, right? That's, that's not what's going on. He's not doubting the fact that he is God and therefore intrinsically good. That's not what he's doing at all. But what Jesus is doing is that he is drawing out the deepest deficiency in this young man's heart. Although the rich young ruler can be commended for giving honor to Jesus by calling him good, here Jesus probes so that the man may see the implications of what he is saying. Young man, why do you call me good? perhaps in this way. It's like, that's very interesting, but why do you say that? What is your category for good? Do you use this term good casually? If I were to ask you, is the man who saves a drowning child good? What about the woman who sacrifices the little that she has in order to feed the needy? Surely she is good, or is she? Or what about the Jew who dutifully keeps the Sabbath? Or the Pharisee that attends every temple observance? Or even a ruler of a synagogue who strives to keep the Mosaic law in every avenue of his life, even from his youth? Tell me, are these all good And Jesus instructs him, saying, no one, no one is good except God alone. As Romans 3 and Psalm 14 reveal, there is none what? Righteous. There is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. No one of their own merit can attain to that good which God requires. No one of themselves can attain to the righteousness of God. Speaking of unbelieving Israel, Paul writes in Romans 10, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. 
for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Essentially saying, no thanks, God. I'll establish my own righteousness. Thank you very much. You see, that was the prevailing mindset of religiosity among the Jews at this time. Because they believed themselves to be good in the eyes of God. But Jesus presses the rich young ruler further. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, the majority of these commandments are all from the second half of the Ten Commandments. And the second half of the Ten Commandments focus primarily on interhuman relationships. And as such, they are more easy to self-assess. But what does the man say? Verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. (laughs) I mean, this is somewhat an unexpected response. I mean, you'd imagine that the typical person would concede to confess at least some minor slip-up. It's like if you're evangelizing with uh, the way of the master uh, method, right? That's where you go and you kind of... uh, kind of go by the Ten Commandments just to bring people to reveal their, need, their sin so that they can see their need for a Savior. You, you ask them, you ever stolen anything at all? You ever tell a lie in your lifetime? I mean, who's going to say, oh, yeah, no, that's not me, right? Usually they'll, they'll concede, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I see your point. Okay, I have, I have stolen. I have borne false testimony. You know, I am a sinner, and then so there's the entry point for the gospel. But for this guy, it's like, you ever stolen anything at all? Nope. Okay. You ever tell a lie in your lifetime? Nope. No, I don't do that. Okay. You ever take the Lord's name in vain? No, never. I mean, you can go through all Ten Commandments, and this guy would probably say he's 10 for 10. But... I'm thinking that this young man is more likely naive than dishonest. Perhaps he was so diligent in self-discipline that he genuinely believed he never violated these commandments. You're thinking, oh, I never, yeah, I never killed anyone. I never committed adultery. I never stole anything. I never bore false witness or defrauded anyone. And I was a good kid. I obeyed my parents, honored my father and mother. But this guy, just like his fellow Jewish religious religious leaders of the time, he's failing to realize that the law was directed at man's heart. Right? As Jesus explains in the Sermon on the Mount, you don't need to kill someone to commit murder. You just need to be angry at them. And to lust is equated with adultery. So as such, this young man was missing the point and missing the intent of the law because the law was given as our tutor to lead us to Christ, Galatians 3.24. It is to reveal our inability to keep it. It's to bring us to the end of our rope and bring us to our need for a Savior. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the aim of the law. Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Yet, it is significant to note here that while this young man has a very skewed view on the law, What has he done? He is here. He has still come looking for Jesus. 
Okay? If you thought that he had, you know, all Ten Commandments all bundled up, I'm good, then he would not be here. I've, I've won the game of the Ten Commandments. I have eternal life. But he has still come looking for Jesus. Though he has spent his entire life obsessed with law-keeping, it has still left him inadequate and unassured of eternal life. It has still left him searching. And that is why he is here. Perhaps this Jesus of Nazareth can help me. Here we are sitting here 2,000 years later, we may find a whole laundry list of things wrong with this man's theology, obviously. But I believe that this man had genuine intentions, okay? I don't believe he's coming to Jesus with, with nefarious intent, like trying to stump him or anything. Or, I believe his intentions are pure. And I also believe that he himself genuinely believed he was willing to do whatever it took to gain eternal life. And rather than condemning him, how does Jesus respond? Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Our Savior responds with a sympathetic love. This is agape love, a love that desires to meet a need. It's not a love based on merit, not a love that's conditioned on response. This is a giving love. And here Jesus meets him where he's at. Jesus isn't calling him to clean up his problematic theology and clean up his filthy rags of works-based righteousness in order to then become a disciple. I mean, you think, what about the other disciples? Do you think Peter, James, and John had all their theological ducks in a row when Jesus called them from their fishing boats? Even later in this passage, passage they themselves responded with astonishment in verse 26. Who then can be saved? So how does Jesus respond to this man? Instead of lambasting the guy, Jesus sees the most pressing need of his heart and he calls on him to let go of his things of this world, to leave it all behind and follow him. You see, Jesus draws all men to himself, both vile, wretched sinners, as well as exemplary, law-abiding sinners. He draws all men to himself, the prodigals, as well as those who labor, weighed down, seeking salvation through keeping the law. To these, to the rich young rulers, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus calls the young man to come, follow him. But in order to take that step forward, the rich young ruler must Leave his former life behind. In order to follow Jesus, a man must sometimes sacrifice that which he holds dear. A man must sacrifice that which he holds dear if they are a hindrance to his entrance into the kingdom of God. In Mark 9, it is very clear. Because if your hand causes you to stumble... What must you do? 
you cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. So Jesus invites him to leave all that he has behind and come follow him. But how does the rich young ruler respond? Verse 22. But at these words he was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. This verse has been described as the saddest verse in the Bible. This man's story is a profound tragedy. He understood his need for eternal life. He understood his inadequacy, his bankruptcy. Yet at the final crossroads, he chose to hold on to his possessions rather than lay hold of Christ. MacArthur writes, he wanted eternal life, but not enough to forsake his pride and possessions. Instead, he wanted to add eternal life to what he already possessed on his own terms. For this young man, his riches became an obstacle that prevented him from entering into the kingdom of God. His wealth, his immense wealth, that word for much property meant many estates. Okay, this guy was filthy rich. And that wealth had become a ball and a chain. And ultimately, he chose to keep that which he had gained in this world, and he forfeited his own soul. So we've seen the urgent question and the revelatory response. Now let's look at the cost of discipleship. The cost of discipleship, verse 23. And Jesus looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, they were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. So the rich young ruler, this young man, walks away grieving. And as Jesus sadly watches him go, he turns to his disciples and he says, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. This is the power and the price of riches. For no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, Matthew 6, 24. You see, the wealth that we have is a resource that God has given. The wealth that you have accumulated is a resource that we ought to hold loosely with an open hand. 
It is a stewardship with which we are entrusted. It is of this world and for this world. Yet how we use it here can have ripple effects into eternity. Wealth has dangerous potential. If left unchecked, wealth can become a snare, both for those who have it as well as those who do not. Alexander McLaren writes, Many a poor man is as much caught in the toils of the love of money as the rich are. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6.10 Riches have the potential to to draw one away from the faith, hindering one's entrance into the kingdom of God. As was this case, this tragic case with the rich young ruler. Like that poor woman trapped by all her worldly goods inside her burning home, the wealth of the rich young ruler that he accumulated in this life became an obstacle to life eternal. Verse 28. And Peter Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and Sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But in many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, speaks up. But Jesus, we have left everything and follows you. And his words were true. Because when Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James, and John, what did they do? They left their boats. They left their nets. James and John even left their father Zebedee in the boat. They bid farewell to it all. And they rose up and they followed Jesus. Peter says, we have left everything and followed you. And indeed, Peter did lose everything. Tradition has it that Peter was also crucified. And he lost his wife. For he witnessed his wife crucified before he was crucified. And while she died gasping for air, he encouraged her to think upon the Lord Jesus. And when it was his turn, he refused to be crucified in the same manner that his Savior was, and he insisted that he be crucified upside down. Behold, We have left everything and followed you. And many saints of the early church suffered tremendous loss when they became Christians, being excommunicated from the synagogue and enduring immense persecution. It's what Pastor Henry and Pastor Ray have been preaching about in Hebrews and 1 Peter. This situation that we find ourselves in today is an anomaly in Christian history. 
Converts in hostile Muslim nations are often disowned and abandoned by their families. They're persecuted, beaten, and oftentimes killed for becoming a disciple of Christ. When they choose to embrace Jesus, they have sincerely counted the cost. Seeing the reproaches of identification with Christ and his people as greater riches than the safety and security of bowing to Islam. For they are looking to their heavenly reward. They have let go of their reputation. They have let go of their familial familial relationships. They have let go of their own personal safety. Yea, they have let go of even their very lives in order to lay hold of Jesus Christ. He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. John 12, 25. And now before we wrap up, I'm going to put this question before you. How tightly are you holding on to the things in this world? What is competing with your call to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? These may not be evil in and of themselves, but could you let them go? What is it that you are unwilling to let go of? Is it your wealth, like the rich young ruler? The bank accounts, investments, the 401k you've aggregated all these years? Is it the education, the degrees that you've toiled to obtain? Is it the successes that you've achieved in this life? Is it the career that you've built for yourself? Or is it an identity that you prize more than your, than your identification with Christ? Do you much sooner tell people that you're a physician, a lawyer, or a developer than that you're a Christian? Do you much sooner identify as a Giants fan or a graduate of a certain school more so than as a Christ follower saved by grace from your sin? What are you holding on to? Is it your hobbies, enjoyments, Netflix, video games, playing sports? Is it your exercise routine? What if God were to take your legs in a car accident? Would you become embittered towards him? What is it that you are unwilling to give up? Is it a lifestyle? Is it an ungodly habit? Is it a pet sin that you nurture and you feed? Or could it even be a person that you simply can't let go of? Is it a wrong relationship? Would you let that person go in order to pursue Jesus Christ? Or even if it is a right relationship... Do you treasure that more than your relationship with God? Is it a special someone, a spouse even, or a child? If God were to take them, would you still hold fast your confession without wavering? What if they're suddenly ripped from your life, slammed by a drunk driver, and they're just gone? Or your spouse is blindsided by cancer, diagnosed much too late, stage four, terminal. Or what if someday God takes your child, stillborn, in your last trimester? 
what will you say then when Jesus calls, come, follow me? Or will you turn away in bitterness and grief like the rich young ruler, weeping as you depart from Christ? I cannot let these things go. Or will you say with Peter, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. We have left everything and followed you. We hold everything that God has given in this life with an open hand. We will hold fast our confession, come what may, saying with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. What do you think you signed up for when you became a Christian? Did you not know that being a disciple of Jesus Christ will cost you everything? If anyone desires to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now this group is relatively young. We are all relatively young. But we do live in a fallen world. This world we're living in is a world where trials, adversity, and suffering are guaranteed. As Job 5.7 says, For man is born for trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. Man's life is few of days and full of trouble. Brothers and sisters, the storm, the storm's coming. The whirlwind, the hurricane of affliction, and sooner or later, it will make landfall upon your life. What will you say then on the day when that category five hits? When they come and they say, renounce Christ, and you can have it all. If not, then we're taking your life. Would you say, you can take my life. You can take everything from me. Just give me Jesus. Join Ayers has been around for a number of years now. For some of you, it feels like we've just met. And it's been a joy getting to know you. For others, for others, your shepherds have walked alongside you for many many years. Seeking to build you up. Seeking to build you up, to equip you before that hurricane comes to edify you, to strengthen you with the steel of God's word so that your faith will be galvanized in its resolve. Looking to Jesus 
and abandoning all else to lay hold of him, your rock, your mighty fortress, so that you outlast the storms that are coming for you. So dear brothers and sisters, disciples of Jesus Christ, what are you holding on to? Is it Christ plus something else? Something that you still need to leave behind? Or have you released your hold on everything else so as to take hold of Jesus Christ alone? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. Your kingdom is forever. God, as we look upon this day when your son met this poor young man, such great love and affection he showed him was consistent with the love that he would show all of us. As within a matter of days and weeks, he would arrive in Jerusalem. He would ascend that hill. And he would purchase our everlasting salvation. God, forgive us for our double-mindedness, double-heartedness as we still cling to remnants of our former lives, bits and pieces of the world that we have yet to relinquish in taking hold of your son. Oh God, we want nothing else. Only Jesus. It's to that end that we live. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.